Today, we've got a special episode. We did this podcast recording live and in person in front of an audience at the Yachad Reconstructing Judaism Together, which was the movement's convention. It was a small room. We had folks singing in the next room, but I think in the actual audio, because of the power of microphones and technologies, it, it comes out sounding pretty well. So this is our live interview with Rabbi David Seidenberg talking about climate change, Torah, and all that fun stuff. We're talking about microaggressions today. Every time you use plastic is a microaggression against mm. the earth. Can I get a quick show of hands? Has anybody listened to the to the Evolve podcast before? Or are you all? Yes. Wow. You actually exist. It's exciting. The um, the metrics tell us people listen, but it's so exciting to actually see and 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 meet in person. So, what we're doing here is where we're recording a podcast. So you're you're in the studio. You're a studio audience, and we're gonna we're gonna have this conversation here today, and we're gonna cut it and edit it and release it. I'm going to do the actual intro. This is, this is what I would do if I were home. So um, from Biachad, welcome to Biachad, Reconstructing Judaism Together. This is Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and with us today is Rabbi David Seidenberg, and, and we'll be discussing his Evolve essay, Renewing the Face of the Torah, Addressing Global Climate Disruption Through Torah. And if you haven't read the essay, it is, um, it is a must read and it goes to the heart of, of climate change, which just might be one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem confronting humans today. And Rabbi Seidenberg really makes a bold argument about the central message of the Torah and what it means. And he will make it far articulated far better than I. He is uh, the creator of neohasi.org and the auth author of the book, Kabbalah and Ecology, God's Image in, uh, in the More Than Human World. He teaches around the world on relating Judaism and Jewish thought to ecology, spirituality, social justice, and human rights, uh, animal rights, dance, music, and astronomy. And um, he is the uh, Shemitah Scholar in Residence at Abundance Farm in Northampton, Massachusetts. So plenty more I could say, but Rabbi, Rabbi David Seidenberg, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to have you. Thanks for, thanks for getting on a plane to be here. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be yes. here. Good to and, and meet in person. We've, we've communicated by text and, and phone, and now we are, we are here in person. So I'm going I'm to kick us off. So you, you write that and, and have said that the Torah is really written as a response to environmental catastrophe and, and um, maybe because of what's, what's going on in the world, but I've seen more than one podcast article lately talking about the late Bronze Age collapse and, and um, the collapse of uh, farming and economy from, from Mesopotamia all the way all the way to Greece. So is that, is that what you're talking about? Or, or what's, what's the environmental collapse that you're, that you're referring to? Is, it, is that the same thing? Uh, it's all related. The question, Brian, is what is the Torah responding to? What happened before the Torah? And there are clues on the kind of um, mythic level 
in the Torah itself. So first of all, we have all of our ancestor, ancestry coming from Mesopotamia. Abraham comes from Mesopotamia. Jacob goes back to Mesopotamia. Uh, what does that mean? Secondly, uh, we have the idea stated three times in Genesis 2 and 3 that the purpose of the human is to serve the ground. So if the human purpose is to serve the ground uh, and then everything goes wrong, why did it go wrong? What does it mean to go wrong? Our ancestors believed, it seems, that it was possible, not only possible, but necessary for humans to understand their role as living in service to the land itself. That, that what, is it, what it means to be an Adam is that you serve the Adama, period, clearly. Uh, but that clearly wasn't the world they were living in. So what's going on there? And then we have the section in the Torah that says, uh, the land you're going to is not like the land of Egypt. It's not like a land that you water with your foot. It's not like a garden of vegetables. But it's a land of hills and valleys. From the heavens she drinks water. She drinks rain. Um, so what does that mean? So we have an idea of a negative image. What is Eretz Israel not supposed to be like? It's not supposed to be like Egypt. Uh, we know our ancestors are coming from Mesopotamia in some sense. And it turns out, actually, that the ecology of Egypt is remarkably similar to the ecology of Mesopotamia in that it's a river agriculture. Um, the land is fed by the rivers. In Mesopotamia, it's even more so because the level of the Tigris and Euphrates is above the level of the land because it, get, it deposits banks around it that are higher than the land. So all you have to do is cut a channel. In, with the Nile, you actually have to raise the water like a foot. And then because it's so flat, it will flow far. Right? So we don't want to be in a land that's like a river agriculture. We want to be in a land that's a mountain agriculture. What is the difference? It says that the eyes of God are continually watching the land from the beginning of the year until the end of the year, which sounds like a good thing, right? Like we're buddy-buddy with God and all that. That's not what it means. It means God is watching you like a hawk. Well, more than a hawk, let's say, right? And um, that's a silly expression. God is watching you carefully, <laughs> much more than a hawk would watch. And... Um, Deciding whether you deserve rain or not. So God, is, God as our, our ancestors would imagine it, God doesn't make a river just stop flowing to punish the people. right? But God can make the rain just stop falling to punish the people. So that means that, the, that there's a, a short window, a short period of time of feedback between what you're doing and whether God thinks it's right or not. Now, this is obviously coming from a... a a way of looking at the world that people nowadays would label superstitious, you know, like the weather is dependent on whether you're a good person or not. But we know in the time of climate change that human ethics has a profound effect on the earth around us, right? And we also know, by the way, that the agriculture of Mesopotamia did destroy itself ecologically. So was that was what our ancestors were responding to? Well, they said they didn't want to live in a land that was anything like Mesopotamia, even though they used Egypt as the stand-in for that. We see that they wanted to be in a land where they would have instant feedback uh, because of rainfall. And so all this adds up to an understanding that they wanted to create a, a radically different agriculture uh, that would become a model for a different world than the one they had inherited. This is, this is actually where I really have, I think I have trouble grasping it because um, I've, I've heard you say that, that the difference between a river agriculture and a rain-based agriculture. And, when we're when we're relying on rain, that's where we start getting. Please, please, God, make it make it rain. But 
I mean, it sounds like the central, unless I'm putting words in your mouth, the central message of the Torah is humans, humans are responsible for, for the world and our environment. So is it, you know, is the message that God's responsible or are we responsible or is a partnership? Like, how do we, how do we unpack that? The covenant is a covenant between God, the land and the people. The first covenant is actually a covenant between God, all living creatures, and the land. That's the covenant with Noah, which is not with the human beings, but with all life, kol basar, and with the land. But in any case, the land is always a partner in the covenant. Um, it's not that it's one person's one party's responsibility or the others. It's that it's a it's a kind of triangle of relationships that are interwoven and in, inextricable from each other. So that's that's the main thing to note. So maybe just like I'm, I'm sticking with 101 questions. What um, what is what is Shemitah? What are the basic rules? How does how does that fit into this? Let's step back a second first before we do that. Great. Okay. So first of all, there's an idea that there's a right way to serve the land and a wrong way to serve the land, and the right way to serve the land is also the right way to be serving God because God put us there for that purpose. Um, our tradition has a bunch of models for what it means to serve the land, and it also has a bunch of models for what happens when you don't serve the land. So the main thing that when you don't serve the land properly, which also means not serving other human beings properly, because justice hurts the land and not just other people when there is injustice. So that's clear in the Torah. So justice is one of the fundamental measures of whether you're serving the land properly and also whether you're serving God properly. Um, the consequence of that is first, no rain. As it says in the second paragraph of the Shema, that doesn't affect a river agriculture, right? They don't care whether they get rain. As long as the mountains where the river comings from is coming from gets rain, they're all good. Right? But that wasn't true in Kanaan, and that wasn't what they wanted. Secondly, if you don't have rain, you have famine. And thirdly, if you don't do justice, you get exiled from the land. So the bottom line there, then, is that the land gets to rest, and that's part of God's covenant with the land. And you can be part of that cycle of rest for the land, or God will either wipe you out or exile you so that the land will still get its rest. So. What's clear specifically in Leviticus 26 is that if, you got, if we make God choose between us and the land, then God chooses the land over us. Not that God wants to make that choice. And obviously we're talking very anthropomorphically and anthropopathically about God. We're going to let that slide for now. Okay. Okay. Just for the sake of explaining. Sliding. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but God will choose, it says, the land over us. And that makes perfect sense ecologically. We don't need to think about it theistically if we don't want to. It is simply true that, that what happens to the land overwhelms what happens to people because we are entirely dependent on the land. And on the land means on the ecosystem. Did that answer what you were asking? I, de definitely. I, I, I mean, obviously, Shemitah is, and the concept is so central to what you talk about. So. Can we can we get yes now we can go the, to, now we can go to basics of uh, of shemitah. So the the basics are that once every seven years we don't farm the land we don't own what grows from the land. Anyone can go into anyone's field and take whatever they want as long as it's for their need and not for the sake of hoarding. But also all wild animals 
can go in and out of all fields anytime they want. And that includes um, the requirement to either take down or open up all fences. It includes the requirement, according to the rabbis, as they interpreted it, to not eat food in your house that wasn't also growing out in the field where animals could eat it. And they derive this all from the, from the verses every time it mentions agricultural shemitah, agricultural release, the sabbatical year. It says, the food that will grow there will be for you and for the wild animal in your land. So they derive from that these rules about fences, about hoarding, about not eating in your house what's not available in the, in the wild uh, or in the farm. And so it's essentially returning to a kind of hunter-gatherer lifestyle, uh, a pre-agricultural lifestyle for that one year. Right? So that's, that's the fundamental pattern. It's based on also our creation story of God resting on the seventh day, and so we rest every seventh year, but then we also rest every seventh day. So when we rest in the seventh day, we are becoming more like God because we're resting the way God did, but we're also becoming more like the other creatures because we're not doing all the manipulative, creative, and uh, you know, inventive things that we do as humans with tools. We stop doing that on Shabbat, so we're both more like God and more like the other creatures in that day of Shabbat. And, and in that day, so in other words, the, the hierarchies between God, human, rest of creation are flattened. So every week we're practicing this experience of changing our relationship to the world and the way we control it, giving up control and living in a more, in a more uh, peaceful, equitable relationship with the world around us. And that gives us a chance every single week to practice for this really big Shabbat, which is a whole year. And the whole year of Shabbat, the Shemitah year, is also practiced because in the seventh Shemitah year, the seventh, seventh year, the next year is the Jubilee year. And in the Jubilee year, all uh, land is redistributed. It's a radical redistribution of land. It's, it's a completely radical vision of society, uh, one based on equity, uh, equity between human beings and also equity in relation to the earth, to the land specifically in order to achieve equity between human beings. So the whole society is premised on practicing every week for practicing for every seven years, for practicing for every 50 years to create this radical, radical vision of a different world with a different relationship to the earth. I guess, um, I guess before getting, getting too far into the meaning, I'm wondering, do we have any, I mean, clearly it's in the Torah, it's important, the, the authors of the Torah thought it was thought it was important, beyond important. Do we do we have any sense textually or even even in terms of archaeology if if this was ever practiced or or, or to or we have if, some hints that the Shemitah year was practiced. We don't know uh, at all whether the Jubilee year was ever practiced. So, so we, we know that Shemitah year was practiced to some degree. Don't, we don't know to what degree. There are detailed laws in the Mishnah about how to do Shemitah. But sometimes the Mishnah describes the idealization of the law as opposed to what was actually done. We have records that the, that the Romans didn't always um, collect taxes in the Shemitah year because they knew that the, the Jews weren't uh, earning money in those years. And so there was a dispensation that they wouldn't pay taxes in that year. We also have records of um, the Romans making fun of the Jews because they're so lazy that they never work. Every seven days they take off, and then all these holidays, and then every seventh year. So there was a consciousness, not just in the Jewish world, but in the world beyond, that the Jews spent a lot of time not working. Damn it. <laughs> What's wrong with them? Uh, and that's a beautiful thing that, that that was so important in our culture that everyone else could see that that was important to our culture. 
So we have a question from the audience, which is great about if there was a specific sect of 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 of, of Judaism, of, of of priesthood, Pharisee that that um, that pushed for for Shemitah. That's not the way I study it, so I can't give a real answer to the question. However, the type of Shemitah I'm talking about is very much what's found in Leviticus and mentioned in Exodus. It's different than not unallied with, but different than the Shemitah that's mentioned in Deuteronomy, which is about cancellation of debts, right? So what we see then is that at different stages of society, you might need different or additional kinds of Shemitah of release in order for society to, re to return to a state of equity. So in a fully agricultural society, the most important thing is letting the land rest. But once you get into a more mercantile society, canceling debts becomes equally important. So you have... Um, um, two different Shemitahs responding to two different kinds of civilization. We learn in the Shemitah year, you are strangers, atem gerim, in relation to the land. You should be strangers. We keep hearing again, you should love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The truth is two things. We have no evidence that there was a conquest of Israelites coming up out of Egypt in the land of Canaan. That's number one. Number two, it's absolutely clear that the Torah is a, a tradition that is responsive to the ecosystem of Canaan and not to any other place. And yet we insist that we are not indigenous to Canaan. We came from Mesopotamia, we came from Egypt where we were formed. So what's going on? It's so important to say that we're the stranger that even if we weren't, we insist that we are. <laughs> Right? So why is that so important? It has to do with how you think of the land and your relationship to it, your ownership, but also how you think of other people. So we are commanded to understand that if we see someone who seems like a stranger to us, we should remember that means they're more like us, not less like us. And when we look at the land, we remember we don't own it, we belong to it. And that is the foundation of all Torah ethics, is this idea of being the stranger. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, eventually we have to build to what, what, what do we, what do we do now, Rabbi? How do we, how do we save the world? But I, I, I think I want to, I want to go, go, you know, wrestle with this a little, a little first. Um, There's a lot to wrestle. There's a lot to wrestle with. You've, you've talked about um, the Hebrew being mistranslated uh, for for eons that that instead of working the land, which we, which we tend to think of, we, we, we are meant to serve the land. And, and I'm wondering about the difference, and I'll, I'll share, there's, there's, a, there's a rabbi friend who's actually an RRC graduate who I have with some time, and, 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 and this, this troubled him. He asked, like, is serving the land, is that, is that almost like a polytheistic um, Spinoza, God is nature territory? So uh, wondering, um, his words, not mine. So wondering how you would Well, if we're going to retranslate, I'm going to jump in here. If yeah, we're going to retranslate La Avodat Adama, let's retranslate the concept of polytheism. Throw it out. Absolutely. Uh, we're talking about paganism, which means place-based religion. That's what it means literally. That's all it means. Judaism is a pagan religion, a monotheistic pagan religion. Okay? Quite simply. Uh, what does it mean? We are commanded many times to serve God, to serve the one with your whole heart. And then it says in the Torah, to serve her, meaning the land. It's exactly the same phrase, exactly the same grammar. There's no distinction. It's, it's clear that 
creation, the land isn't God, isn't a God. The land doesn't create itself. God creates the land in our story. We're not going to get confused about that just because we accurately translate when it says la'avot et adama, which is what it says. So why did we mistranslate it all this time? I don't know if it's eons. I, I don't know how they translated it back when they weren't translating it. Makes you know? sense, right. <laughs> um, but anytime we say work the land, it's an attempt to distinguish and say working the land is not like serving the land. And in Hebrew, there is no grammatical distinction. And we never translate to say, you will work God with your whole hearts, which would be just silly, right? So to be an Evid is, is, the, is, is the goal of the right thing, right? Every, as Bob Dylan says, you have to serve somebody. Gotta serve somebody. Pick right? the right, pick the right uh, one to serve. And the right one to serve, according to our Torah, is God and the land both. I'm really interested in what we spoke, uh, we, we had a brief conversation on the phone plotting this out, and, and you spoke about cultures evolving to, to really be in balance and, and stewards with the land. And, and I was sort of wondering if, you're, if what you're, you're, you're asking for and maybe what the Torah is calling for is, the, is, 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 a, is it a full change in human nature and how we, how we, we are in balance with our environment. I pointed out, I mean, um, folks who listen to the podcast know I've, I've, I've talked a couple times about Yuval Noah Hariri's big history book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humanity. And he talks about the first, the first Australians, um, you know, wiping out large mammals, you know, within a couple hundred years, 40,000 years ago. And, and, um, same in, in North America more recently. And, and, and I, I guess you, you responded that, that maybe like the cultures that evolved from, from that get a bad rap. So I was wondering if you could not get a bad rap. That's not quite right. What Good. I'm saying is that <laughs> no, not at all, actually, the cultures that evolved from societies that that created mass extinctions or ecological devastation, they respond culturally to that historical or mythical memory, however it exists for them, to create a different kind of culture. So most North American cultures of Native Americans are intensely attuned to their place and to the ecological needs of their place. Um, we could say, oh, that just means those are better people and people in the West, worse people. But if you look at the history and imagine that actually there was a mass extinction of large mammals that took place, however many years, 80,000 years ago, however many tens of thousands of years ago, and the culture responded to create something radically different, then that gives us hope because that means human beings can respond. And we, it's not changing our nature. If it's our nature, you can't change it. That's what it means to be your nature, right? But what we have is we have culture that responds to change, trauma, and transformation. We have culture that does it. That is the nature, the essence of culture. And we see in Australia, in New Zealand, in North America, that cultures responded to ecological devastation to transform themselves into radically stewarding the earth in the, in the highest way, which means not thinking we're so smart, we can steward the earth, but actually living in harmony with the land. You know, so if, if that could happen, it could happen here too. But the question is, do we have enough time for the transformation before we cause ourselves to be go extinct? That's the question. Because if we have enough time, 
There's no question that we'll be able to accomplish that, but it's not clear that we have enough time. And part of that, let me go on, on a little bit of a tangent Please. here. Um, this is why our ancestors wanted to be living in a place with the mountains and valleys where it would be like one season and the next season you would get your punishment, right? Because what technology does and what it did in Egypt and what it would do, it did in Mesopotamia and what it does generally is it defers the consequences of your actions for maybe a generation, for maybe 10,000 years. So the Egyptians can go and water their fields from the Nile and maybe one year the Nile doesn't get in as much water as another, but it all balances out and they can go for quite some time before there are ecological consequences, right? Same thing with Mesopotamia. So in order for Mesopotamia to go under ecologically, they had to be watering the land over generations so that the water tables was risen and the salt came to the surface of the earth. They also had to be um, trading with people who who deforested the mountains with, that were the sources of the rivers, which is what happened, so that it changed the amount of silt coming down and the composition of, of what was coming down. So eventually the land was completely salinized. And so first they went from growing wheat to barley and then they abandoned the land. Right? So our ancestors knew that. That can't happen in a mountain agriculture. Right? Uh, salts are always being flushed out of the land. It can't happen in a mountain agriculture. You get instant um, reprisal, as it were, but, uh, but also instant healing, as it were, or rather rapid reprisal, rapid healing. That's what our ancestors wanted. We have a technology that's prevented us from dealing with the consequences uh, in the ecosystem of our, of our lives and the way we live for now some 5,000 years. And when the shit hits the fan, it's going to be a lot of shit. Is it okay to say that? I think Word. so. We have an adult audience. We're groundbreaking right now. That might be the first swear. <laughs> <laughs> Always the first. Because that is the proverb, the shit hitting the fan. Anyway, wh when it hits the fan, it's going to be a lot. And that's because of our technology continually deferring the consequences of our actions. Mm -hmm. Right? So, uh, our ancestors imagined an agriculture that wasn't dependent on technology, per se, right? And that would have this short cycle of response. Yeah. So can we do it now? Can we do that cultural transformation, which is the question? And it's an open question. There's no way for us to answer it. Right now, the, the, the consequences are vast. They're already baked in. There's no way we're going to avoid them. Um, the Earth is going to continue, and life will continue. And this beautiful planet will continue. And the question is whether we get to be part of it or not. And that's the choice we're making. So, so to answer the question of whether we're going to be, can be part of it or not, whatever, um, I mean, science clearly has to be part of the answer, political will. What, what role do you, do you see religion and faith and, and, and our little corner of that playing in, in however this, this story turns out? There's a few different ways to look at that. Uh, first of all, we have some really good spiritual technology that's worth sharing with the world, especially Shabbos, Shabbat. That's important. That's essential. Uh, we also have something else which isn't specifically ecological, but was, is specifically useful, which is we're really good at splitting ethical hairs in order to find answers to complicated problems. We've spent a lot of time developing dialectics to do that, and there are going to be a lot of complicated problems where it's not black and white. You know, we should stop using plastics entirely now. None of us can do that, and none of us are going to manage to avoid to not use plastics. You're wearing a plastic 
band around your neck right now with your name tag, <laughs> right? And your name tag's in plastic. Now, we could have made a different choice for this conference, but that doesn't matter. My little coffee cup is wrapped entirely in plastic in the hotel room, right? We're talking about microaggressions in the first session today. Every time you use plastic is a microaggression against mm. the earth. But we can't reach purity like that. Right. We have to figure out how to transform society. So uh, another element here then is that we use ritual and spiritual attunement in order to keep the goal in mind even when we can't simply make it happen, practically speaking. That's another element that it plays. I think Shabbos is the most important thing. Shemitah is, of course, the most, most important thing. But it's important for us to start bothering with it, forget about the rest of the world, right? So we had a mission. The Torah gave us a mission, which is to create a society capable of observing the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. We never did the mission. It's been thousands of years now, we haven't done the mission that we were given. What would happen if we would do the mission? Well, you'd have the radical transformation of Israel-Palestine and societies there. Uh, for one thing, if you think that you're a stranger in the land and that you have to treat other people as equal to yourself, you couldn't do a lot of things that are happening right now to the Bedouin or to the Palestinians in the West Bank. Nobody would think of doing that if they were following what the Torah said. I, I kind of agree strongly. I agree strongly with where Reb Zalman taught, which is that every religion is like an organ of the human body and every religion needs to play its role in order for humanity to heal itself and to heal its relationship to the earth. So that's our organ. We have to do the work, whether it's the difference or not, we don't know. Um, the other thing is that we have a certain kind of leverage since our book led to two much bigger religions than ourselves. So we should try to use that leverage to change everyone else in that good way, which is to go move away from anthropocentrism, to move away from the idea that humans are entitled to use the earth. The Torah has been interpreted to mean exactly those things and not the ecological message that's in the Torah. So we have to also transform, transform how we're reading the Torah. But I think the actual shot, the real meaning of the Torah is what I'm saying. It's not just an interpretation. I had I had planned on going to 45 minutes and then opening it up to questions, but I see hands hands going up there there. So do you, do you, do you, do folks want to jump in or? Um, I think that one of the really amazing possibilities around the issue of shemitah has to do with has to do with the the pollution of our our land, and particularly the the political at, work that I'm doing is around is around toxic herbicides and pesticides, and if shemitah is a way to leverage a transformation of behavior, a permanent transformation of behavior, because if you could if you could imagine the whole world not using um, pesticides and, and to or toxic herbicides and other kind of toxic pest pesticides for a year, which they all say is, oh, you can't do that, it's too expensive, blah, 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 do all that. It could it could really like open up the possibility of doing things differently and looking into organic land management and really kind of connecting to the land with more reverence and relationship than what we do now. Yes. 
What's the question? It's not a question. It's a comment. <laughs> I'd love you to respond to that because I, I, you know, in the in the midst of political, in the midst of political work, I mean, one of the things that I think prevents a lot of this is people's alienation from the land in the first place, mm -hmm. and uh, right, and it, it's a mentality that needs to be shifted. Um, practically in the land, and and this, there needs to be a spiritual blueprint to move us that way. So maybe you can suggest some some steps in that way. Let's take a step back first. Okay, why are Jews so alienated from the land so often? Why is our culture not so not embodied the way it needs to be? In order to be authentic and true to itself, forget about what it's going to do to the earth and how it can help the earth. Just to be true to being our own full humanity. We need to have a Judaism that's more embodied. And that means more embodied, not studying in yeshiva with the fluorescent lights and the polyester suits, but it also means more embodied, not taking that kind of hyper-rationalist reconstructionist approach only. Because part of being embodied is that you're moved on the mythic level, on the, on the spiritual level, that isn't necessarily explained by rationalization. Right? We need all the forces and all the powers that we can possibly muster to get where we need to go. So Jews need to uh, up our game, as they say, right? right? We need to do that. And we can do that, but also we're going to become uh, richer in our lives as Jews and as human beings by doing it. So most of the changes that are really good changes are very much in our enlightened self-interest and not just in the interest of the earth around us. It means living richer, more holy, more beautiful lives. I don't know if... Um, if other people feel this way, but it's just such a difference to be drinking out of plastic or not, you know, for example, right? Like that's a quality of life issue, as well as a quality of do you want the plastic going through your blood, et cetera, but even on the simple sensual level, right? So how do we want to live? Everything, we need to make everything something where, where the quality of life that we're seeking also aligns with the quality of life, meaning capital L life that the planet should be having. And that includes changing our relationship to things like pesticides, which are coming from oil. It's another example of extraction. And we need a Shabbos from extraction. And we are the first generation that maybe can formulate the problem. So it hasn't happened. We don't know what a Shemitah from extraction looks like. We need to figure that out as an example. Um, one thing that should come up, and I know that you were alluding to before, Brian, is uh, what should we do now? You know, what's the, right, like, what are the practical implications of any of this? Can we all go be hunter-gatherers? Or I mean, we certainly can't. And, and um, we would hunt out the world pretty quickly if we did that. We can, we can move towards uh, doing a lot of farming. And, and that's what a lot of the, the Jewish environmental movement is about now, especially the younger people. And that includes doing agriculture, which is no till and no pesticides, this kind of thing, and organic agriculture. And so we can do all those experiments and we need to transform more and more our society. So that's the norm rather than the exception or the margins. So that's all something that we all can do. That's not a specifically Jewish thing to do. It's a specifically human thing to do, which we need to do also because we are 
needed to be the best human beings and not just the best Jews that we are, right? The question is, how does our practice as a Jew support us doing that? That's one part of it. And then the other question is, how does our practice as Jews help us envision the transformation that we might not otherwise envision? That's where Shemitah comes in, especially for me. Uh, one of the things that's gone on since the previous Shemitah year, the previous Shemitah year was the first one that was ever widely observed in the Jewish world since the exile. And it, probably before, because we again, we don't know how much it was observed even before that. Um, the Knesset ended fishing for the whole year in the Kinneret for that year in order to respond to Shemitah. People were... Um, Instead of donating to organizations, they were making loans to organizations of their donations so that the donations could then be loans that were canceled at the end of the Shemitah year. So you get a double mitzvah. We like those double mitzvahs in Judaism, right? We like that. So um, creative ways of making it a living part of our world uh, also are creative ways of helping us learn how to transform the world. But I don't have the answers. Is the bottom line. I, I, I want to put out the message and I expect and pray that other people are going to take the message and the, all the other messages that people like me are putting out and it will add up to something bigger than any of us can envision. And, and that's the only way that it's going to work. So one, one element we haven't talked about yet, um, which is really closely related to the land is is animals? Where do where do animals fit in? Um, I'm 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 still one who gets my uh, my print New Yorker every week, and there was just uh, a piece by Lawrence Wright, very very famous journalist, um, um, looking looking at the a court case in 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 um, in New York of a filed habeas corpus filed on behalf of an elephant at the Bronx Zoo. I think the elephant's name was was Happy. happy. Apparently, happy. Happy's not very happy, but but. Should we be granting? Should we be granting personhood to to animals? Are we are we keeping all the animals in the world captive? Like it, it seems like if we take this serving serving the land really seriously, it 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 might have real implications for how we think about animals and and our yeah. relationship responsibility. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to say about this, and it's it's all interesting. Uh, first of all, there are many stages in Jewish history where animals are already attributed personhood, right? So, and there are things that are the functional equivalent of animal rights in Judaism that are stronger than animal welfare. It's not just we should be nice to animals because we want to be good people. It's that animals have a kind of uh, protection from being treated that way, which in our modern language would be that they have rights. What they don't have is, in Judaism, they don't have the right not to be killed and eaten as it were, or at least they didn't have it anymore after the flood of Noah. Now, there are many, many Jewish thinkers who think that when Mashiach comes, they will again have that right not to be eaten, and that that's the way the world is supposed to be. So that's one thing to think about. Uh, another thing to think about is that there's an idea in the Torah that we use the creatures around us for our own lives, but only in a way that is also in service to those creatures. And that means can mean in service to the species, it could mean in service to the ecosystem, and it can also mean in service to the individual animal, depending on the context. Another thing to note, which is fairly fascinating, I think, Maimonides talks a lot about animals in the Guide for the Perplexed. He always, every single time, 
He talks about humans and the other animals every single time. So we have a nice, pretty That's long wild. tradition for thinking a little differently about this than the way, you know, modern Western ideology comes down on it. And remember that modern ideology about not thinking of animals as persons is pretty short. We're talking about Descartes. You know, before that, they were in the medieval ages, animals were put on trial sometimes for crimes. You don't do that unless, unless something is understood to have personhood, right? For wow. example, that's a strange thing, but it's a true thing. There's a rabbinic ideas about animals on, on occasion being put on trial as well, by really? the way. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so and there are, uh, there are lots of stories about animals behaving as moral subjects. So that's also important to know, where they make choices. Uh, there's also midrash about this as well. That does not mean that we treat other animals the same way we treat other human beings. But what are the differences? Um, we want to say species have rights, for sure. And we want to say that animals have subjectivity that deserves to be protected. That is, um, as Moshe Cordovero talks about, you can't take anything from the world, plant or animal, unless it's to raise it from level to level. You know, unless it's to do something in service to the soul of that being. And if so, if you're going to kill an animal, you can only do it for need, and you have to do it in a way that's a mita yafa, a good death, a death that you would wish for someone that you loved. Because actually, the concept of good death comes from the Gemara, from the Talmud, which says that you, can, you have to give someone who's um, condemned to a capital punishment, to being killed by the court, that they have to get a mita yafa, only a good death, meaning pain-free and non-disfiguring. Those are the two requirements for the death penalty. And uh, the Talmud says that that is a way of doing love your neighbor as yourself. So Moshe Cordovero, when he says you have to give a mita yafa to an animal that you're killing to eat, he is saying you have to treat it as your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's not even just saying all human beings are your neighbor, he's saying all animals are your neighbor. But there's, it seems like there's, there's, there's a real concern whether, whether it's an animal at a zoo or, or, or one, you know, boxed up in a cage getting a chicken being pumped full of hormones that where it's not about killing and eating, it's about denying, denying an animal its essence while it's, yes. while it's alive. Yes, and, and, and Moshe Cordovero didn't have the concept of raising chickens like <laughs> machines and torturing them for their entire lives until you killed them, which is what we do now. Right, so none of that is acceptable, and all those chickens and all those cows should be considered not kosher, through no fault of their own. Because, as every kabbalist knows, the highest aspiration of a cow is to get eaten by a kabbalist. <laughs> now, I don't really believe that, but that is an idea in Judaism, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. Because then it elevates the soul of the cow wow. in, a, in a great way. But only if you have the right intention. An ignorant person shouldn't eat meat, because they won't elevate the spark of the animal. They'll make it go down instead of up according to that way of looking at the world. Anyway, as far as the life of an animal, so we have an idea of what a natural life of an animal is. If an animal comes into the world, it's going to die, right? That's always true. That's always true of all of us. So what kind of death would you wish for yourself? When you have a pet, you wish for a good death for your animal, right? Of course. And you think and you measure what is the quality of life of this, of this animal? Of, that I love, and um, 
at what point would I say that a good death is better than, than the life that they're leading now? Well, if you can't look at the animals you're raising for food in the same way, then you have no right to be raising an animal for food. Right? And then the idea behind the, the Jewish way of looking at animals actually is something like this. It's that an animal that lives in the wild, we don't have any right to take. It's not ours. We don't have any responsibility for its life. And so when and if you kill an animal for eating, it's not easy to do, by the way, because you can't injure it and you have to cut its neck with a knife in the proper way without having injured it at all. But only a domestic animal can you take its life without that concern. And the reason why is because you've been spending your life giving it its life and sustaining it. So now you're in a position and there's an arrogance to this, but it's also a sensitivity. It goes both ways, right? You're in the position having given so much life to this animal and sustained it and cared for it and presumably loved it to understand what might be a good death for it. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be in, in the business. I don't think fishing is an animal. Yeah, we, we, we do not have a seafaring people. And the result of that is we have no coherent understanding of how to deal with fish. And it's a problem that uh, future Judaism will figure out, I think, uh, I hope, because uh, right now we don't have a way of shechting fish that makes any sense, and we don't have any particular way of understanding what is suffering for a fish. But that might happen in the future. Huh. Yeah. But if you notice, we have very specific instructions that are ecologically minded for what animals can be eaten. So animals that have cloven hoof can graze on soil that's too rocky to plow or too steep to plow. And animal that chooses cut means it can eat grasses that humans can't eat. It can graze on land that isn't good for farming. So you only raise animals that don't have to compete with humans for food or land. And that's an ecologically sustainable way to choose which animals to eat. Uh, our rules about fish are just, does it look like a fish, basically, fins and scales, and don't have any ecological um, grounding because we weren't really aware of that realm, I think. So that's something waiting in the wings to be developed. Well, so folks should know I was, um, I was a reporter for a long time, and they tell me I'm a podcast host now, so I can... I can ask questions all day, and 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 I will till they tell me to stop. But does does anybody else have a a question ready to ask or ecological basis for the um, for some of the what animals you can eat not not eat? And I know this it's just coming up in the parsha or soon about kashrut because what we've been taught in the reconstructionist congregations is that there's no rational basis for this, and I actually think this is a a basis, a grounding that I never really knew about, which makes total sense. So. There, there's nothing that there's no rational basis for, including the para aduma, the red heifer. You have to know what to look at in order to figure out the reasons. What we mean when we say it's not rational is that a person sitting alone in a room wouldn't think of it by themselves. But a culture living in relation to an ecosystem might think of it over a few thousand years of interaction with that system. So a person's reason might not be sufficient, but there is a greater kind of reason that comes through the interaction between a culture and an ecosystem. I mean, I know we already asked, Rabbi, what should we do? But is there, is there practical advice or questions you want folks to take 
to take back to communities? I thought that was the last part of your, your, your question. I think it's a, it's a way of looking at things that I didn't think of because we're so acculturated to thinking that we have to act from an individual perspective first. It's a very American um, perspective. And this, to me, is really the way we need to go if we're going to be responsible stewards of the land and moving us into a, yes. a, a better, a greater place of justice. How do you move from the collective, from the individual way of looking at things and the modernist, humanist, um, anthropocentric and anthropoarchic, meaning humans ruling everything way of looking at things, to, towards a more collective one, one that's more rooted in sort of the ancient wisdom of the Torah. We have to decolonize the patterns of Jewish thought, actually. And that means doing things like um, rejecting the idea that there is a division between body and soul, for example, which the Torah has no mention of. Nefesh means body as much as it means soul in the Torah, for example. Um, there's lots of other examples. Um, the thing about working the land versus serving the land is another way of an issue of decolonizing Jewish thought so that we're not, um, so we're seeing things through the lenses of our ancient, ancient ancestors. And that's not necessarily even through rabbinic lenses because they're already deeply influenced by other cultures, some of which, not all of which, but some of which subverted uh, some of the wisdom and insights of the, of the Torah. You've been thinking about Shemitah and in environmental issues for, from what I understand, 40 years, maybe, maybe more. Are, are you more optimistic than when you, when you started sort of in the, in the height of the nuclear age? Less? Are, are, is there... Absolutely less. Look, every year, it's, it, it's, impossible no every, <laughs> it's impossible to be a conscious human being and paying attention and not every year become less and less optimistic. Because we're, we've known now what's going on for a good few decades and done nothing that will be significant. Okay, let's stop destroying the earth as fast. Let's destroy it a little bit slower. That's, that's the closest we've come to. And that is obviously not a workable solution. I'll, I'm going to keep killing you, but it's, it's going to take 10 years instead of a month. Are you happy? No. So, so no, there's no reason to be optimistic at all. However, uh, there's a kind of optimism that's about like saying, oh, everything's going to work out, and that's stupid optimism. But there's also something that is about hope and believing that even if the chances are slim, they're still there and we have to do everything in our power to take them and make them happen. And that is also one of the things that we learn from religion that we absolutely need to keep intact. So we need religion, not just Judaism, but all religion, to keep us focused on however slim the possible hope that there is, that we can make the world work out in a way that's good for us and for all the creatures on the planet. And I, I do think it's still possible, even though it's so easy to be pessimistic. Thank you, Rabbi Seidenberg. Thank you for coming. The, the um, acoustics and tech might, might have been some issues, but, but I think it was a really... Um, important uh, conversation you shared some really powerful words of, of torah thank you for the for the conversation and and making the trip thanks brian and love to jacob also ah absolutely evolve groundbreaking jewish conversations is executive produced by rabbi jacob staub and edited by sam walks our theme song ilufinu is by rabbi miriam margols this show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we will see you next time. Oh.
Hallelujah.